Luke 24, please. Notice the, uh, the beauty of our backdrop, how it's just like the Bible is a narrative that is continually unfolding. In the same way, this design, you'll see it uh, in the next two weeks. Uh, in the last week, it was, it was kind of black and white, and this week it's still continuing to unfold. So we want to see it just as we see Scripture, uh, as Scripture is also a narrative that continues to unfold God's Word. So let's read from Luke chapter 24. Start at uh, verse 13. That same day, the day of Jesus' crucifixion, or the day of Jesus' resurrection, excuse me, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they walked along, they were talking about everything that happened. And as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. And he asked them, so what are you talking about? <laughs> so intently as you walk along. This story is a little humorous. You got to see the underlying humor behind it. So they stopped short with sadness written across their faces. And then one of them, Clopas, replied, you must be the only person in all Jerusalem who hasn't heard about the things that happened today. Or in the last few days. And Jesus says, oh really, what things? Well, Cleopas said, the things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. And we had hoped that he was the Messiah who was going to come and rescue Israel. And this all happened three days ago. And then some women from our group, some of, our, some of his followers were at the tomb early in the morning, and they came back with an amazing report, and they said his body was gone. And they had seen angels who told them that Jesus is alive, and some of, some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. And then Jesus said to them, You foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all the prophets wrote in the Scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering into his glory? And then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from the scriptures all the things concerning himself. Let's skip to verse 44. After Jesus appears to all the 11 disciples, he says, Then he said, When I was with you before, I told you that everything written out about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand scripture. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it reveals Jesus. You wrote a book. This is your story. And this morning, Lord, we pray that you would show us what it's about. Show us, Father, what this book is about and how it applies to our lives. We pray that you'd give us eyes to see and hearts to understand. We pray, Lord, that you speak to us now through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, on my last most recent trip to Boston, I took my family there. We took our 
our newborn, who at the time was six months old. Now, if you've never taken a newborn on a plane across country, you know that in itself is a journey. On the drive to the airport, to LAX, 4.30 in the morning, which, by the way, you don't want to wake up your kids at 4.30 in the morning either. So there's two strikes against me. On the ride there, my four-year-old daughter, I have three, she vomited in the car, which was okay because it was borrowed. I don't know whose car it was. (laughs) But we had a friend driving us to the airport um, who... Later returned it to Pastor G. He borrowed it from somebody else. (laughs) That's how our trip began. And it didn't get much better. This was deemed, I called this trip Operation Good Times. Because this was the trip that I was going to take my family and we were going to, I was going to show them good times around the city. My wife and I had been, I had been with friends. This is the first time my kids were going to be there. And we wanted to give them good memories of the city. Overall, the trip was a success. We took the kids around the city. It was really cold. Not as cold as it is today. It's 10 degrees there today. That's why I'm wearing a sweater. In honor of Boston. (laughs) But the trip was a success, but it was a brutal battle. Three nights in a row, babies crying all night in the hotel room. We're on a, obviously, time delay. When we get home... uh, I'm just thinking how I can put as much distance between myself and that thought and that memory as possible. I'm thinking maybe witness relocation program. Maybe I go to Mexico. I, you know, just those thoughts that you want to <laughs> just put distance between you and the will of God, the call of God. You ever been there? Of course you have. Um, when we got home, we just thought we're, gonna, we're just going to rest. We haven't slept in days. This is the night. We'll finally get some sleep. Well, that night, my daughter vomited about eight times in her room. She got the flu. My wife got the flu. Our daughter got the flu. I got the flu, and I was sick for a few days, and I didn't want to talk to anybody. Britt called my phone, didn't want to talk to him. I didn't want to share with them the craziness of a trip. I was just processing it myself. I just wanted to stay in my bed and just, just be by myself. And it wasn't until a few days later. During that time, I had been having some conversations finally with Britt and with my friend Dominic and Tim in L.A. And each of those guys were speaking truth to me and, and kind of sharing with me some of their own stories. And I, I got some good rebukes a few times. And it was really searching for me in the sense of the idols of comfort and the idols of identity of where I live and where I'm from, all that stuff, it's, it's deeper than I thought it was. And it wasn't until um, Saturday, we got home on a Wednesday, and on Saturday, I got up, got my Bible for the first time since I got home, and I went for a walk. And you know, God, God speaks to me, he has, in the last 15 years, probably most powerfully when I go for a walk, I grab my Bible and I pray the words of Scripture back to God. And I was desperate this morning. I prayed, God, I need to hear from you. I need something from you. I need a, a reviving of my heart. I need you to burn in my heart the sense of your provision and your directions. You ever been there? And the rain had just been washed away and the sun was shining now 
and I could see the mountains in front of me, Carp Mountains behind my house, beautiful. And I'm walking, and as I'm walking, God spoke to me through his word. Something changed my situation and my heart. It didn't change my situation. My heart was changed. And what changed it was a story. A story changed it. And maybe for some of you here this morning, you feel like I'm in an impossible situation in life right now. I mean, God's calling me to be remain, stay and remain faithful. In this situation, I can't even conceive how I can stay here. God's calling me to leave and go somewhere where I can't even conceive how I'm going to make it there. God's calling me to uh, be faithful to a spouse that has hurt me, wounded me. To love my child that has forsaken me. To love my neighbor who's wronged me. To forgive that individual who's crossed me. To say I'm sorry and I was wrong to the person who so badly bugs me. And you feel like, I just, you know what? I just want to put as much distance between me and that situation as possible. Maybe between me and God as possible. Some of you there? These guys in this story know exactly what that feels like. They thought, you know what? Our whole dreams, the, the things that we'd hoped for are completely shattered. And what changes them what revives their heart and what gives them hope again is not principles. It's not how-tos. You visit Christian bookstores. We're pretty fortunate in Santa Barbara. We pretty much have none. But if you visit any <laughs> Christian commercial bookstores, like right next to the potpourri that Peter used, <laughs> you find slew of books of how to, how to be a better this, how to experience more of this, how to, un, how to uh, manage your finances like, like, you know, somebody in the Bible did. And I'm not saying that those are bad, but I'm, what I'm saying is we have a great, and we need those, the how-tos. And next week, we're going to look at how to understand Scripture. How do we read this story? But this week, you know where it's important we start? It's important that we start where a lot of us never see, is that what is it about? What is it? For a whole host of young people, when they were surveyed by uh, both Barna and by a sociologist by the name of Christian Smith, when asked what the nature of the Christian faith is and what the Bible's about, do you know what their answer was? God wants me to be a good person and obey his rules. It's the term that Christian Smith coined therapeutic moralistic deism. Therapeutic. God can help me heal my inner wounding. Moralistic. I'm supposed to be a good person. Deism. I believe that there's a God somewhere. Although he's probably not actively working right now. What is this story about? It's so important that we understand because it's the story that changes these men. It's a story that changed my perspective on that day. And you know what? Over and over again, I need a story to change me again and again. I need the story to change me. So what is this story? In order for you, I want to give you, today it's going to be kind of tricky because I want to leave you with some practical tools of how to read the Bible and understand what it's about. And I want to also apply it to our lives so that we're changed by the essence of what it is.
So in order to do that, to understand the story, you need to do two things. First, you need to find the need. Find the need. What do I mean by that? I mean, you have to find the fallen condition focus. That's what one professor says. You have to find the area of doubt, of concern, of unbelief, of fear in the text that shows the need for redemption. Because a lot of times we read the Bible to find good examples. But the Bible's not meant to give you good examples or moral platitudes. It's meant to show you the need for redemption. So what's the need in this story? It says in verse 13, first of all, their direction shows us their need. They're walking away from Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus on a dirt road. Sunday, or it's a Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. The body of Jesus is gone. They thought Jesus was going to redeem them. They thought he was going to do things that he hasn't produced yet. And their direction shows us that they just want to put as much distance between them and the community of God, the people of God, and suffering as possible. They're walking to a village called Emmaus, seven miles away from Jerusalem. Also, their, their, um, their emotions show us something of their, of their need. It says, Jesus came up to them by himself. You know, God hides somehow, masks the person of Jesus. In verse 17, he asked them, hey, so what are you talking about? So intently as you're walking along. They stopped short with sadness written across their faces. And Cleopas replied, you must be a complete idiot. So funny. Sadness written across their faces. The direction that they're walking. Late in the day. They're feeling down. And then their conversation shows us their need too. They start to talk with Jesus. We read that. And then as they explain to him why they're so sad, they say to him, we thought that he was going to redeem Israel. Or verse 21, we had hoped he was the Messiah who was going to rescue us. We hoped he was going to redeem us. You know, redemption is the greatest need in the human heart. From Bob Marley to Karl Marx, we understand whether it's in our music or in our philosophy, I have a need to be set free. And what's interesting is the things that sometimes we run to to free us, substance, success, relationships, oftentimes become the things that most bind us and become such a slave master. We hoped he was going to be the one. We, you know, we really hoped. I mean, we've, we've done a lot of things. We've hoped in a lot of stuff, people. But I thought this was going to be the thing. You know, when I started following Jesus, I thought he was really going to finally free me from the suffering thing. But he hasn't. He's completely let me down. He's dead. Their conversation shows us their need. Our favorite movies are about redemption. And what Jesus says to them, what we find, well, before we get to that, why do you think that they missed Jesus? See, that's part of the, that's, that's a big error in reading scripture. Is that we miss Jesus. We read the Bible for 
the sake of uh, blessing or um, understanding of how we can live so that we can have a better life, 10 principles towards a better life. But what they need to see is that this book is not a manual to fix them. It's meant to take them to Emmanuel to free them. This book is not a manual to fix you. It's designed to take you to Emmanuel, the one who can free you. And they completely missed that. Why? Because they read the Bible for self-salvation purposes. When they read the Bible, they said, I want to read the Bible because I want more of what God has. I want all that you have for me, God. But they didn't read the Bible to say, I want you, God. And whatever you have for me, be it suffering, I will follow you. Why? Because self-salvation, the need to free ourselves, is so deeply entrenched in your heart and mine that every time you read scripture, you're tempted to say, how can I imitate that person? Look what Martin Luther says. It's exceedingly difficult to get into another habit of thinking in which we clearly separate faith and works of love. Even though we are in faith, the heart is always ready to boast of itself before God and say, After all, I've preached so long, I've read so long, I've prayed so long and lived so well and done so much. Surely he's going to take this into account. But it cannot be done. With men you may boast, but with, when you come before God, leave all that boasting at home. And remember to appeal from justice to grace. But let anyone try this and he'll see and experience how exceedingly hard and bitter it is for a man who all his life has been mired in his work righteousness to pull himself up out of it and with all his heart rise up through faith in the one mediator. He says this, I myself have been preaching and cultivating. Listen to this. I've been preaching and cultivating it, grace. For almost 20 years, and I still feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal so with God that I may contribute something so that he'll have something to give me in his grace in exchange for my holiness. And still I can't get it into my head that I should surrender myself completely to sheer grace. Yet I know that this is what I should do and must. He says, I've been following Christ for 20 years. I've been preaching and I still find the aching pull to show myself to God. The reformers, when bringing back the scripture, appealed to sola scriptura. Our highest authority is in the Bible, the word of God, the God story. Faith alone, Christ alone, in the Bible alone. But we all have a tendency as Brian Chapel says, for solo bootstrapper. <laughs> I will finally be good enough to pick myself from my bootstrap and show you, God, that I'm worth the blessing. You need to find the need. You need to see it's not a manual. It's f- about Emmanuel. Not a book to fix you. It's a story to free you. Now, even though you see your need for redemption, and not just your need, practically when you read scripture, the first way to read a Christocentric 
uh, through Christocentric lens. That means seeing Jesus through scripture. To not miss Christ. The first way to do that is to find the need. How do we do that? Ask a couple of questions. You ask, what was the author's intent of this passage? What did the author mean to say by writing this in the history and time that he wrote it? That keeps you from not just missing Jesus, but falling into magical Jesus. Where like even Augustine at one point, uh, who said that the side of the door of the ark represented the side of Christ that was wounded in the entrance to all who come in. That's not what it means. (laughs) The ark was a real boat. Um, By asking the author's intent, what did he mean by that? That keeps you from falling into magical Jesus or spiritualizing the text of scripture. But also asking the question, secondly, what's the struggle? What's the burden that the characters are, are bearing in this verse, in this section? What's the ambition of the character? But not just practically asking the text that. Ask yourself that this day. Where does your struggle lie? You know, you can find it a lot in the way that you respond, like these people. The directions you find yourself going, the conversations you find yourself having. Does it tend to go inward? Or does it tend to go upward towards the perfection of who Christ is? What is the burden you're bearing today? See, it's not just a sinful issue. It's also, it's also a burden that you might be carrying. That's your need for redemption. Where will you find it? These men said, I thought he was the one. I thought he answered prayer. I walked with him. I thought he was going to free me, but he died. And Jesus says to them, Oh, foolish people. How could you be so foolish? You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his story or his glory? As a side note, I find it interesting that all of the details in this narrative, in this story. You have the name of the people, Cleopas, the city that they're walking to, the distance that they walked, the day that they walked on. All of that points to the historical evidence, like we talked about last week, of the story that's true. The myth that became fact, like C.S. Lewis called it. C.S. Lewis said, you know, if you, don't, if you read this as a myth that's not true, then you've not learned how to read. I've read myths all my life, and I know the difference between what's real and what's not. Eyewitness accounts, over 500 people at the time of Paul's writing were still living. Don't you think that it could have been easily uh, verifiable? And these people, Paul, uh, Luke names them. He names the city. He names over 30 cities in the book of Acts. It's not just the story that's a myth. It's the myth that became true. It's the true fact. They didn't actually start writing in detailed form until rationalistic literature until a couple hundred, three hundred years after the accounts here. You know, these letters are dating back to 20 years, the New Testament letters, within the lifetime, within the time of the events that they happen. The Gospels, um, 
20 to maybe 40 at the most years that they happened. That is so early to understand that fully you should listen to what we talked about last week. But I digress on that. That's not my point. What my point is finding the need. Let's come back to this. You need to find the need in order to see Christ in scripture. But that's only one side of the story, so to speak. Secondly, you have to follow the thread. What do I mean by that? And why, can sto- why does Jesus give them a story? Give them principles. Tell them how to, be, how to have more faith. Tell them you know, five ways that they can believe better. Instead, he gives them a story. Over the past year, I've been studying a lot. Well, I've been pretty fascinated with what makes up a good story. And I've, one book that I, uh, one book that I read said, you know, the essence of a good story is that, here it is in a nutshell. Someone who wants something of value and overcomes conflict to get it. That's the essence of a good story. Think, filter through all of your favorite movies. You know, every superhero movie, Batman, Superman, every superhero movie. A character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. (laughs) It's funny that we all hate conflict so bad though. But that's what makes a good story. They hated the fact that when he died, we thought he was going to come through for us. But like one author says, maybe God's just a really good storyteller. A story designer. Speaking of story, um, G.K. Chesterton, in his book, Orthodoxy, in his chapter called Ethics of Elfland, doesn't get any better than that. All about mythical figures and and, uh, the need for wonder in the life of not only children, but you and me. He says that since our worldview no longer has wonder, we tend to steal it. We steal it through art. We steal it through movies, through songs. We want wonder. We want a story that will free us. And so we pay a lot of money to go see stories, some of which are terrible, some of which are really good. And he says every story has to have these three elements. It must show that there's mysterious powers that are out there beyond us, something bigger than me to live for. It also has to show that a situation of doom and hopelessness, a character who wants something and overcomes conflict. But there's a heroic key to the story. It unlocks the barrier between the impossible situation that we're in and then it brings redemption and rescue and deliverance and salvation and they meet on the top of the Empire State Building and they kiss and they live forever after. That's hopelessly, you know, for some reason, it was high school, I watched all those romantic movies. It was terrible. And now I'm married and I'm doomed to have to repeat history. But a good story casts a spell on you. It casts a spell. That's the nature of the word gospel. In the Greek, of course, it's uh, news. The gospel is news, not instruction. But we get our word gospel in English language from middle, 
Middle English word, good spell. A good story. A spell that can change you and cause mystery in your life. And recently I was given a biography from a friend of J.R.R. Tolkien. It was, happened to be Brit's biography. I don't think he knows I have it, but it's been good. So in the biography, what's most fascinating is the way that <laughs> Tolkien led C.S. Lewis to Christ. They were on a road. They were walking. And Tolkien, he had this view that you have a, a, a secondary belief. Of course, you live in reality, and rationalism was uh, the product of the Enlightenment, that there is no supernatural as a result. And now we have this uh, very uh, much, we have a, a how-to culture, how to live. But Tolkien said he believed in a secondary uh, belief. And that means that you know something that's not true, but you want it to be true anyway. You care about the character. You hear the story. And someone tells you a story, you know it's fiction, but it draws you in. Have you seen a movie like that recently or read a book? I love movie that has a good plot. Not just, um, you know, explosion. I'm not averse to explosion, but I like a good plot. And you are drawn into this character. You care about them. You care about what's happening to them. You can't wait for the resolution. You feel anguish because they're being wronged. You feel, uh, you, you want them to be changed. You want redemption in the story. And what he said to C.S. Lewis was, you know, we live in a culture now that's where all the voices of our culture and literature say that there's no point of life. They point not to secondary belief, but to this rational belief but we still pay money to go see those stories that we know are fictional. We have a sense that there's something deeper. There's a different reality. There's a secondary truth. And we desire those kinds of stories where the character is escaping death or a love that doesn't part. It never goes away. There's no death. And he says, the reality is we know that there's death, but we feel like it can't be. This can't be all that there is. There's gotta be more. And C.S. Lewis, he felt deeply about stories and myths. He said, yeah, I see what you're saying. But you know what? And he said this language. He said, but myths are lies that are breathed through silver. They're lies breathed through beauty. It's not real. And Tolkien says this, and here's my point. Look at the gospel. If you look at the gospel, it's everything that you long for in a story. It's a battle between good and evil, the hero and the serpent, the dragon. It's escape from death. It's a love that never parts. It's the, the hero that kisses the bride so that she can, so that she can live forever. It's the, the, the sacrifice on the behalf of the person who's being chased after. It's the story that we all long for. And he says, the gospel is not just one more story pointing to the underlying reality. This is what Tolkien said in that book. Rather, listen, Jesus is the underlying reality that all other stories point to. Jesus is the point of the whole story. Later, C.S. Lewis wrote a book that said, 
Jesus Christ has opened up a cleft in the pitiless walls of the world. And he said, he's punched a hole through the concrete slab that kept us from everything we thought was real and out there. And what we think we're lied to, to believe that this is all there is. Jesus has punched a hole and he's come through as a hero. You don't only have to find the need. You also have to follow the thread. What's the thread? Jesus says here, wasn't it clearly predicted the Messiah would have to suffer all these things? Verse 27, then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and the prophets explaining all the scriptures concerning himself. And in verse 44, he says, I was with you before and I told you everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He basically categorizes all the genre of the story in the Bible, all 66 books and says the law, the prophets and the poetical writings are all about me. It all points to me. So as you follow the thread, Jesus says, this is the hermeneutic key to reading all of scripture. Hebrews 1 says, in various times and in various ways, in olden days, God spoke through prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his dear son. And he's the image of the invisible God so that we can see God. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, you know what? You religious people to the Pharisees. You search the scripture so diligently because in them you think you have life, but they are which, they are they that speak of me. You missed Jesus. It's a story about him. And what happens is that instead of being swept up into the story of God, we take the Bible and we sweep it up into our own story. And instead of becoming a means for redemption, we make it a means for narcissism. We make it about me, a manual to fix me, to make my life a blessed life. And Jesus says, you know what's going to fix your heart? You know what's going to fix your fallen condition? Focus. A story. Find the thread of redemption in the story. How do you do that, you say? When all of the children's stories that we learned as kids and that we sometimes have been prone to teach to our kids show us, dare to be like Daniel. But the story wasn't about Daniel. The story was about the coming king, as it says in Daniel 7, the son of man who will come and free all of humanity. Daniel was pointing to a greater prophet. Jonah. It's about a fish and don't disobey God or else you might get kicked to the East Coast. (laughs) Instead, Jonah is meant to show you that although this man was thrown into the ocean, Jesus, the son of man, The greater than Jonah plunged himself into the ocean for destruction on your behalf so that you, like Nineveh, the people who have rejected God, and like Jonah, the people who were self-righteous and read it like Emmanuel, can be set free and redeemed. The covenant with Abraham in Genesis, for all the way from Genesis chapter uh, chapter 2, or chapter 3, when Adam and Eve fall into sin, Chapter 3 is about the thread of Jesus who would come and God would send his own son. A redeemer who would crush the head of the evil serpent. 
but the serpent would wound his heel. But this seed was again mentioned Genesis 12, when Abraham was given a covenant by God and said, I know you're like 100 years old, Abraham, but I'm going to provide a son for you. Because through you, I'm going to show how weakness is made strong. My weakness, my strength is made perfect in your weakness, in your old body, as good as dead. And I'm going to provide a seed for you. That seed, of course, would be Jesus Christ. God keeps this covenant, though his people continually fight and continually rebel against him. Moses leads his people out and Jesus says, don't you remember what Moses wrote to these two disciples? Now, it's interesting here because these two disciples just came from celebrating the Passover meal before the death of Christ. And in the Passover, which was given through Moses by God, it was meant to take away the sins of the people through the blood of an innocent lamb, slaughtered, and then the blood put on the doorposts. And Jesus takes them back there and he says, do you think that that was about a little lamb? Do you think that that was meant to take away all of your sin, that the lamb could free you? That speaks of me. That the thread of all of scripture, as you follow it, is all about Jesus. It's not about you. See, there's two ways that you can read the Bible. That it's primarily about you and what you have to do or it's primarily about Jesus and what he's done. One author said, well, I'm going to skip what that author said. Because I want to show you instead what a different author said. And all the dads in here or all the heads of homes, I want you to listen to this. Because this is out of a children's Bible That if you never buy your children another Bible, buy this book. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And the subtext to it is that every story whispers his name. Sally Lloyd-Jones, I think we carry it here. You have to get it. This is what she says. First time I read this to my daughters, it brought tears to me. Now, some people think that the Bible's a book of rules telling you what you should do and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules. Now, we shouldn't discount the text when it's telling us of moral principles, right? But we don't want to run to moralism. Do you see the difference? Where we miss Jesus and make it about what we should do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best according to your design and your nature. I added that. She can use it if she wants. But the Bible, isn't, the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you must be doing. It's about God and what he's done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people that you should copy. But the Bible does have some heroes in it, as you'll soon find out. Most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all, though. They make some really big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away, and at times they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure, a story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, throne, everything to rescue the ones that he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There's lots of stories in the Bible, but all those stories are telling one big story the story of how God loves his children and he's come to rescue them. (laughs) 
See, friends, for you and I, Jesus makes sense of these stories. We no longer read the Bible like it's some weird decoder ring. Or with a decoder ring, however you use a decoder ring. It's before my time. (laughs) We start to read it as it is. Not a manual to fix you. It's about Emmanuel who frees you. And it starts to make sense to us. The stories make sense. The story of David. See, if you read the story of David and all you see is, I need to be like David, courageous and mighty so that I can beat the dragon, slay the giant of fear and sin in my own life. But it's not about that at all. Tim Keller says, until I see that Jesus fought the real giants, sin, law, death for me, I'll never have the courage to be able to fight ordinary giants in my life. Suffering, disappointment, failure, criticism, hardship. For example, how can I ever fight the giant of failure unless I have a deep security that God won't abandon me? If I see David as my example, the story will never help me fight the failure giant. But if I see David, Jesus, the greater than David, Jesus as my substitute, whose victory is imputed to me, then I can stand before the failure giant. As another example, how can I ever fight the giant of persecution? persecution and criticism unless I see him forgiving me on the cross I won't ever be able to forgive others unless I see him forgiving me for falling asleep on him when he asked me to pray I won't ever be able to stay awake for him unless I see that he is the one who always stayed awake for me see how that frees you see the moment I said it's about David conquer your giant you said okay I think I can muster up courage But the moment I said, it's about Jesus, the greater than David, the king who didn't murder or commit adultery, the one who fulfilled the law and who's the righteous king, you said, oh, that frees me. See, the reason why Jesus gives them a story is because it's starkly contrasted to any world religion. Whether it's Hinduism, Buddhism, um, Islam, however you'd see it, it's all principles of how you should act. The Bible's the good spell. It's the story that puts you under its spell to free you from the idols of your heart. Because why? You begin to see Jesus as more beautiful, as better than, and has already conquered the giant of sin, death, and law on your behalf. Not only does Jesus make sense of the stories, he makes sense of the The themes of scripture, the theme of king and kingdom runs throughout scripture. That in the the garden, as Adam and Eve rebel and sin against God, as a result, there's a perennial theme that runs through scripture that man needs a king to rule over him. That's what Israel attempts to do through all the, the sections of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Judges, is that they seek to establish their own king for them. But all the kings fail on their behalf because they're mere humans. No human can do it. Moses fails at it. David fails as a king. Even the best kings like David fail. Josiah, Hezekiah. All these stories are meant to show you, yeah, There's redemptive qualities to lives that are lived for Jesus, but ultimately they can't free you. You don't copy the life of Hezekiah. You see the greater than Hezekiah, the king that came to save and free his kingdom and his people. 
The theme of law and grace is a tension that runs throughout the Bible. Throughout the Bible, there's this tension of, okay, so is God's covenant conditional or unconditional? Like, is it conditioned on their obedience or unconditional based on his promise? Yes. Both. God gives his promise, but you know what? You can't make sense of it. It's this weird tension that's never completely unresolved until you get to the cross. Where Jesus is the one who kept the covenant on your behalf, on the behalf of his people. And on the cross, Jesus frees his people so that they could believe on Christ, the covenant keeper. The one who came to fulfill the law. Jesus makes sense of the theme of true God and idols. On the way over here, Britt was telling me how he, he taught on idolatry and idolatry of the heart and how it runs so deep in all of our hearts is all through scripture. And you know what? We can't free ourselves from it. We attempt to find something to redeem us. We find the need and then we try to, we follow, we don't follow the thread. We try to find something else to free us and that enslaves us. But through scripture, we see that Jesus Christ, the only way that we're freed is that Jesus becomes more beautiful, more glorious, more lovely, and begins to loosen our grip on the things that we have held so tightly. And Jesus also not only makes sense of the stories and makes sense of the themes, he also makes sense of the law. Take, thou shalt not commit adultery, for example. You only are sexually pure and sexually right in accordance with how you've been designed as you see Jesus, his spousal love to his bride who continually leaves him and, and, and plays a whore on him. And as you see his faithfulness and his complete purity, it motivates you in a way that's deeper than, you know what, now I gotta fix this. It's deeper because you see Christ as the covenant-keeping spousal love. Also, thou shalt not sin, uh, steal or covet. It's only resolved in the New Testament when you see the generosity of Jesus, how through his generosity, you are set free. I begin to see, I don't, I don't want to steal. I don't want to covet. Jesus, you've left everything, your glory and everything that you all, that who you are to come into this wicked, sinful world and live for me. See, Jesus makes sense of the stories of the themes, of the law, all through scripture. I want to read this to you. Tim Keller says this about the story of, of Christ. He says, all the individual stories point to Jesus as we locate them in the history of redemption. And then he says, Jesus is the true and better Abel who through innocently slain, though innocently slain, has blood, has blood that cries out for our acquittal, not our condemnation. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and the familiar and go out into the void, not knowing where he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount but was truly sacrificed for us all while God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you didn't withhold your only son, your son whom you love from, from me. Now we can say to God, now we know that you love us because you didn't withhold your only son from us. 
Jesus is the true and far better Jacob who wrestled with God and took the blows of justice we deserved. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who, at the right hand of the king, forgives those who betrayed him and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between his people and and his Lord who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is, listen to this, this is my favorite. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for his, and saves his stupid friends. <laughs> Jesus is the better Samson whose death accomplishes so much good. They never lifted up a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace but lost the ultimate heavenly one who didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better teacher from Ecclesiastes who may lead us through despair to help us find God. He took our meaninglessness with, without God upon himself when he lost God on the cross. We must not think that putting Jesus into the, one, or into the text means that um, we just simply find good examples. Jesus is the true and better one. And that's what scripture speaks about. You've got to find the thread. And then Jesus makes sense of it all. And lastly, don't just find the need and then follow the thread. You've got to enter into the story. So that's why we love, that's why today's youth especially loves video games. Because it doesn't just tell me what I'm supposed to do. It allows me to enter into the world. But this is the world that's true. This is, as C.S. Lewis said, the myth that became true. How do you enter into it? You have to put yourself, obviously, find the need, follow the thread. But practically, how do you enter into it? You have to place yourself under its authority. It's not enough just to see it. You have to put yourself under its authority and say, yeah, by your grace, Jesus, now I see your beauty, that you're true and better, and I want to follow you. George MacDonald um, has a story called um, The Princess and and the Goblin. And in the story, it's a story about a, a young princess named Irene who's eight years old. And she's surrounded in this castle by ghoulish figures, goblins, disgusting creatures. And they're closing in on the castle. And her grandma gives her a ring and says, now Irene, if anything should happen to me, I want you to put this ring under your pillow. And if anything happens to me, I want you to put it on. I want you to find the ring. And there will be a thread that comes out of it. And I want you to follow the thread. And you'll find me. It'll lead you to me. So, like all good stories where it's about someone who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it, conflict happens. And Irene puts the ring on. The goblins are fast approaching, coming in. They're about to completely ransack the castle. She puts the ring on, finding for the thread. She finds the thread and she grabs it and she starts to follow the thread. But to her dismay, it leads them not away from her, not away from danger. It leads her right into danger. It leads her past the goblins and she's starting to see them and saying, what did my grandma do? 
She's dead. We thought she, he was going to redeem us, but he failed us. She failed me, she said. And it's taken her past the goblins, past trouble, past conflict. And then it takes her right into, not just past them, it leads her into the domain of where these things live. But as it leads her there, ultimately, she finds her grandma. She rescues Curdie, who's a character in the story, the character that needs to be rescued. And it leads her to where she needs to be. If you put yourself underneath the authority of Scripture and say, I'm going to obey it. And you find that, oh my gosh, God's calling me to certain things that are completely countercultural. It's against my current culture. It's against, I think, my nature. You might start being led past conflict. You'll be led in ways that I never thought I was going to be going this way. But just like Diedrich Bonhoeffer, when he was, uh, he was back in New York after he had fled from Germany. And as he's there, he's reading the story of God and he senses on his soul, I'm supposed to go back into Germany and fight for justice. And he puts himself under the authority of scripture. He follows the thread back in. And you know what it leads him to? You say, yeah, <laughs> a lot of good it did him. Death. But do you see how many people that his, his, life, his, his life was filled with conflict, but it was a real story. He put himself under, the, under scripture and he lived a story that freed many, many people. That showed many people the beauty of the gospel fought for justice and for you and I what changes our heart is when we see Jesus Christ he speaks a story to you and it's the story of who he is that changes us it's not just a manual to fix you it's Emmanuel who frees you and father we thank you for your word and we pray lord that you would you would be the the center, the hero of our story. As we worship you now, we glorify your name. We say, Jesus, you are the better than. We want to worship you. You are God with us, Emmanuel. In Jesus' name. If you'd like prayer, there's prayer team on the right and the left. And if you notice in the story, the character said, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked about the scriptures on the road? And when they sat down together, they broke bread and they realized it's Jesus. Right now you have an opportunity to, to take of the bread and the cup that signifies it's Jesus. And as you do that, you can come, you can kneel, you can stand, you can stay, you can pray. God bless you.